0: This episode is brought to you by Chalk Cartel. I've been using this chalk for more than a year now and it's my favorite chalk that I have ever used. And now, Chalk Cartel has launched a new size option, the Half Kilo. The Half Kilo gets you 500 grams of pure, uncut, high-performance climbing chalk in a more convenient package. Instead of buying quarters, you can now save on dollars and packaging and get more of the stickiest white powder on the market. The half kilo uses less packaging overall and comes in a fully compostable bag. So you can chalk up to your elbows during these hot summer months while respecting the environment. The folks at Chalk Cartel are also offering their customers a limited one-time offer. Right now, you can get a free logo brush with every half kilo or kilo purchase. Now, unfortunately, you cannot combine this deal with other discounts like Nugget. You can use the code Nugget to get 20% off, but you can pick whichever code you want based on what you're buying and use whichever one gets you the better deal. So check out Chalk Cartel. Head over to chalkcartel.com to pick up a half kilo of premium climbing chalk and decide between their limited time offer for a free logo brush or use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next purchase. That's chalkcartel.com and get ready to join the cartel. Chalk
1: Cartel. You're against you.
0: This episode is also brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions. This is my go-to when it comes to taking care of my skin. I have been using the Performance Cream to keep my skin dry because it's summer and I'm training and I'm sweating a lot and it really helps to keep my skin dry for training or for outdoor climbing. I've been using the Repair Cream in the evenings to help my skin heal between sessions on my boulder projects Whether you have dry, glassy skin or sweaty skin, and you have trouble keeping chalk on your hands like me, Rhino Skin Solutions has products that are designed just for you and your skin type. Check out my episode with founder Justin Brown, episode 22 of The Nugget, to learn more about which products are right for you and learn how to dial in your skin for an upcoming performance season. That's a super valuable episode. Still one of my favorites. And I definitely recommend it if you want to try Rhino products. If you want to level up your skin game, head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. That's rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off and start taking better care of your precious skin today. And finally, this episode is brought to you by Grasshopper Climbing. I've had a lot of great conversations lately on the podcast, and one of the things that keeps coming up again and again when it comes to getting better at climbing is consistency. There's no magic hangboard program or bouldering routine that is going to get you super duper strong in six weeks. The key to making lasting gains in your strength and your climbing technique is consistency. Just climbing or training regularly for years and years but consistency can be hard if you have kids or live in a city and work a nine-to-five job and only have the evenings free to train and have to compete with crowds at the gym it can be really hard to stick to a consistent schedule luckily the folks at grasshopper designed the perfect solution the grasshopper board was designed to give you an entire climbing gym experience right in your home and the best part, they did such a good job with the hold shaping and layout that the grasshopper board will be right for you whether you are a total beginner or you climb V15. It's so efficient, it's so good for training, and most importantly, it's super Fun to climb on. But don't take my word for it because the folks at Grasshopper just want you to try it out and see for yourself. If you want to learn more, head over to grasshopperclimbing.com or check them out on Instagram at grasshopperclimbing. Check out their boards and reach out to their sales team to see which board solution is right for you. And be sure to tell them I sent you because the folks at Grasshopper are offering you guys, my dear listeners, $500 off when you order a fully kitted out 8 by 10 foot grasshopper board. $500 or even more if you upgrade to a larger board. Again, that's grasshopperclimbing.com or at grasshopperclimbing on Instagram to check out the grasshopper board. Hello friends, welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt. And today is a little bit different than usual because I have two guests on the podcast today. Stean Kristofferson and Martin Mobraten, both from Norway. These guys are the co-authors of The Climbing Bible. The Climbing Bible, technical, physical, and mental training for rock climbing. This is by far the most comprehensive climbing training book I have ever seen. It covers everything. It covers how to get strong for climbing. It covers how to get fit, how to work on technique, mental game, how to recover from injuries, everything you can think of all in one place. It's awesome. And the authors, Stian and Martin, are super legit climbers. I'm actually just going to read their bio from the Climbing Bible. Stian Kristofferson is a physiotherapist and coach, has climbed for over 20 years, been an athlete on the national team, and was the 2009 Norwegian bouldering champion. He has also climbed extensively outdoors and has first ascents of routes up to 8C, that's 514B, and boulder problems up to Font 8B+, that's V14. Stian is a formal national team coach in climbing and is a personal trainer for several of Norway's best climbers. He has also been responsible for the Norwegian Climbing Federation's education of coaches, and in addition to running his own physiotherapy practice, he educates the next generation of coaches at both a national and international level. And Martin, Martin Mobraten, has a master's degree in civil engineering, has climbed for over 20 years, been an athlete on the Norwegian national team, and is a former Nordic champion in climbing. He has climbed extensively outdoors and has red-pointed several routes, graded 8c+, that's 514c, and boulder problems up to font 8c that's v15 martin has coached the norwegian climbing federation's youth recruits and many of the stronger juniors in the Trondheim community for the past 10 years martin works daily with climbing courses route setting and facilitating climbing both indoors and outdoors i'm going to summarize all that these guys are both total badass climbers they're super educated they've been doing this stuff forever they've done a lot of coaching and they took 20 plus years each of climbing and coaching experience, and put it all together into a book called The Climbing Bible. So, I hope you enjoyed this episode. We talked about many, many things. I spent some time getting to know both Steon and Martin, and then we dove into the book and some of my most burning questions about how to get better at rock climbing. I'll let you guys discover the rest, and with that, we'll dive in. I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Steon and Martin. I think we should start by having everyone say their name. Yeah, I want you guys to each say th- your name so that listeners will know who's talking from this point on and so that I get the pronunciation right when I introduce you guys. And then also, um, where we're all talking from, because this is kind of a, a fun modern experience, you know, that's only possible with mm-hmm. modern technology. But I'm, I'm in my van, as you guys can see, and I'm in Flagstaff, Arizona right now, just parked on a little Forest Service road. Um, gonna go climbing later today. But yeah, Stian, maybe you go next.
2: I can go next. I'm uh, Stian, Stian I'm Kristofferson. Uh, I'm currently sitting in my, my basement in oslo surrounded by all the laundry from a family of four so i just squeezed into uh, to a couch in the basement and it's uh, seven o'clock in the evening so looking forward to this
3: yeah my name is uh, martin Mubrotten, and uh, i'm up in the north of norway now uh, on a work trip and free diving trip so yeah
0: awesome awesome and I'm it's going
3: to flagstaff in uh, october just had to say
0: it. Yeah, Steon just mentioned that, actually. That's really cool. Have you been here before?
3: No, never to Flagstaff. It's one of the places I really wanted to go for a while, but I've yeah, never been.
0: Yeah, same. I've I've heard great things and had never been here. This is my first time here, so oh, uh, it's sweet. fun to check it out. It's a little bit warm. I think you're going to be psyched that you're coming in October. It's definitely not ideal right now, but yeah. fun to check it out. Awesome. And then to get to know you guys better before we jump into the interview and start, I have so many questions about your book, about each of you and what you guys have learned from a lifetime of climbing and coaching. I think it'd be really fun to have you two introduce each other because you, it's really hard. I always find it really hard to introduce myself on a podcast. Like I'm Steven, I'm 33, you know, just say the same things. But you guys know each other so well. Let's do it that way. I, I think it'd be really fun to have you to introduce one another as climbers, um, as professionals, what, whatever else you have going on. But um, Stian, let's start with you introducing Martin, if you don't mind.
2: No, I can go first. This will be fun. <laughs> <laughs> You're nice, man. <laughs> no, yeah, true, true. Martin is the older one because he's one year older than me. So um, he's old i'm young uh, he's uh, thirty nine turning forty this year uh, he has a wife that is way smarter than him she's a doctor uh, he's uh, currently uh, root studying as a job but is actually um, a, an a civil engineer so he's pretty smart after all and uh, Martin is probably one of the most gifted climbers that I've met throughout my my life he um did hard routes for his time when he was quite young. Yeah, I think it was like 15 when he did his first 8B and this was back in 1996 or 7. Something like that. And then has basically just kept going. Done uh, some uh, really hard routes and boulders up to 8C uh, around in both South Africa and Hueco. I think he actually has a very hard first ascent in the Esperanza cave that no one really knows that Martin did, mm. which is the left left entrance into, um, into Esperanza, right? Martin has no breaks when he's psyched on something, which has been really good for me was since we've known each other since we've been 13. So it's good to hang out with people that are genuinely psyched uh, with no limitation on what's possible to achieve.
0: I love this. This is this was such a good idea. Okay, Martin, your turn. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Um Oh, thank you, Stian. Nice uh, words. Kind of um yeah, reminds me of your speech in my wedding, so <laughs> I'll just repeat my speech in your wedding then. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's true. I think this uh, is this is the problem actually because we've known each other for so long. It's like I think I think we maybe compliment each other maybe once a year? (laughs) No,
3: but um, I can start by the beginning though because I think we met when uh, we were like uh, 13 uh, or something. Uh, I was really into fishing. I think like the opportunistic uh, version of myself. I'm probably always like that. Uh, I saw you and you had a boat and I thought that if I got to know this guy who had a boat, I would probably catch some fishes that were way bigger than the ones I got from shore (laughs) so yeah um, I got to know you Uh, of course you let me come in the boat and we went uh, fishing and then uh, your father was climbing and you had gone with him climbing for um, for some times uh, and I joined you Uh, and I think for me it was like the moment that I got really stuck into something I knew that climbing was something for me and I think for you when I was really psyched on it uh, and you had someone to do it with that wasn't Your father and his friends, you got really psyched on it as well. So we have been climbing quite a lot ever since. We lived for a year in France. We traveled uh, all over Europe many times. Uh, We did all the competitions uh, and everything. And later on, you got like established a bit earlier than me. You studied physiotherapy and um, got married to Karianne and got a couple of uh, kids, uh, Kasper and Oda, uh, which have now started to climb and um, yeah like climbing wise for me I think you're like, the, yeah, you're like a really good climbing partner because you have other qualities than I do I'm pretty like physically strong I'm strong in positions I'm strong in like yeah, maybe the echo style of climbing mm. whereas you are really good in the um, I would say more technical font style of climbing um, you can do the perfect dead point in first go, whereas I have to practice it for maybe like one hour before I can do it the same way. So I think you're a really good um, partner for me in that way. I can learn a lot by climbing with you. Um, yeah. There's nothing more to say about yourself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is great. So you guys have been f- close friends climbing partners for like 35 years, 36 years, something like that. Is that right? Or no, I'm sorry, 25, tw- 25 20. or 26 years. <laughs> yeah, not that old. I'm trying to add a decade to your lives. So I'm sorry about that. Um, so describe your <laughs> no. describe your friendship and your partnership now. Um, you guys both have your own families and, and careers and things. What does that look like today? Do you guys still climb together primarily? Or are you, um, I mean, obviously you just wrote a book together. But apart from that, describe your friendship and partnership these days.
2: For me, us been quite easy uh, because I've settled in and have, have two kids uh, and Martin uh, doesn't have kids or, uh, or family yet. So it's been really easy for me because I could usually just name a date and then he'll say we'll go <laughs> wherever we, we want to go. So uh, we still climb a lot together uh, besides like the local climbing partners uh, here in Oslo and uh, Martin is the one that I've been traveling with for the last 10 years I think like basically I don't think I've been I'm not sure if I've been on a climbing trip for, uh, over the past decade that hasn't been with you Martin actually which is quite scary when you come to think of it <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I can't say the same I've been on a lot of climbing trips you, but I've uh, <laughs> probably been on all your climbing trips as well though, yeah mm-hmm. no but it's like um I think we're the kind of friends that um It's very easy to go on a trip with you because it's the way that it has always been, you know. Uh, I mean, we know each other very well and it's always fun when we go traveling. So, of course, there has been less uh, trips uh, together for the last uh, 10 years than what we maybe would have wanted. But uh, the trips that we had have been, yeah, they've been really good. When was
2: the last trip we went on? England. England, yeah. went to Sheffield and climbed with and uh, climbed with Jerry Muffet.
0: That was quite cool. Oh wow! That's oh, amazing. That was amazing. amazing.
2: <laughs> that was amazing. Really. Was. I'm still star. I'm still starstruck. So
3: <laughs> yeah, he that's was like, he sent cool. him like a mail yesterday because we wrote like an article about him for a magazine that we we're publishing like yearly, and uh, just like that is actually like he's actually answering our emails. It's like <laughs> 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 uh, so stupid, but yeah.
0: No, I, cool. c- I can relate. I can relate. I had the same yeah, experience. when. He, gym, huh? Yeah, yeah. he showed up on a Zoom call just like this. And I'm like, wow, I'm staring at Jerry Moffat right now. He's just in his living room. This is amazing. Yeah. This, uh, is it's so really wild. Cool. Yeah. So cool. Um, I want to take a little bit more time to just introduce you to, as individuals and as a friendship, partnership, what is something that each of you admires about the other and something that you've learned from one another?
3: Mm, I can go first this one. Stian, if it's okay. Sure. Yeah. Uh, just because I had something, I, I thought of something. <laughs> um, no, I'm very restless. I have a really hard time of uh, like uh, be happy in the moment, and I'm not sure if you would agree, Stian. But to me, you seem very happy with the situation you're in, whether it's the climbing trip or if it's staying home uh, with your kids and wife uh, or if it's uh, going fishing or um, spare fishing or hunting whatever you you never seem too long to be somewhere else than you are at in the moment or where you are at in the moment so um, i'm trying to learn that from you but it's hard not to be
2: like pulled somewhere else hmm. If it made sense, yeah, I'm, uh, it made sense. Uh, I'm glad to hear. I guess that's kind of a psychological self-defense system that you built when you get kids that you just have to <laughs> you just have to have to enjoy the moment. Um, no, but I think, and <laughs> I think this is maybe where we've uh, been a, a good a good combination for for so many years that i think i am i'm am maybe more present in in the moment than you are by nature and so so it's the same for me that this is eager to push forward to do to do other things to explore more um like i mentioned in in when i did your did the speech in your wedding that i don't think i would have experienced half of what i have throughout my life. If it hadn't been for this need, you have to go a bit further to explore more, to go and do stuff. So I think we may, might feed a bit of each other on that part. So so that's what what I admire, at least. I mean, you left a very high-paid, high-status job to go climbing and route-setting instead, which is like one in a million does that, makes that choice. and? when you have kids and have family, those kinds of choices are um, inspirational in the way that there's always something you can do to fit uh, those things that you really wanna do into your life.
0: Hmm. So let's talk about that a little bit. So you guys are both really high level climbers yourselves. You wrote this book together, but you have totally different careers. I mean, Stian, you're a physiotherapist. Um, You work, I think primarily with high performance climbers, but but you have a wider practice as well. And then Martin, you have a master's in engineering and then have pivoted and now you're route setting and and climbing. So uh, what does a day in the life look like for each of you? Um, You could also, you know, it doesn't have to be a specific day. You could kind of talk me through like what normal life looks like. Like what's a week look like? Um, You know, what do you do for work? How often are you getting out climbing and things like that?
2: Um, I can go first. I guess my week is a bit more routine than Martin's. So um, I, uh, I have a physical therapy practice. So I'm, I, I have patients three days a week. And then the two other days are supposed to be uh, for other lines of work, but are usually, uh, I usually try to go climb instead. <laughs> because uh, I, I, I start my day by waking up two kids and a wife and then making breakfast and lunch boxes and all the rest and then, if on the days that I have patients, I go to the clinic and I work with patients until four, and then you come home, and then you make dinner and travel to all different activities with your kids, uh, coach handball teams and climbing, like youth climbing um, teams for the kids. And then you're home by eight or nine, and then um, and then it's not much left of the day. Um, so that's <laughs> why I keep these these <laughs> Tuesdays and Thursdays of mine quite quite sacred to mm. go climbing or to go training and then try to fit in all the other stuff.
0: <laughs> nice, do you block those days out entirely for climbing and training? You try not to work at all on those days?
2: I try to, but it depends a bit. Like I also run a, a podcast with another friend of mine, which is more related to physiotherapy and musculoskeletal health um, in Norway. So I tried to put some of those, those interviews on on those days, and uh, when we have deadlines, for instance, for the book or lectures or other stuff, then those always go into the um, the Tuesdays and Thursdays. but then, if I know that I'm going out climbing, then I can usually do all of my work in the evenings or very early in the mornings and then you have the rest of the day off mm-hmm. usually mm-hmm. so uh so that's um that's a week in a life.
0: Thanks for that, yeah. I think we lost Martin.
2: Yeah, yeah. He said the computer
0: died. He's going to fix it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) um, Well, maybe I'll just, let's just just keep going since uh, I don't want to take up all your time and then we can kind of fill him in. Um, Tell me about some of your own proudest climbing accomplishments. I know you recently climbed, I, I believe your first couple 9As, which is so inspiring to me to hear that after you know, 25, 26 years of climbing that you're climbing your hardest still. Um, But yeah, I don't don't mean to answer for you. What are some of your proudest climbing accomplishments to date?
2: Um, I think that first one you mentioned um, is one, but we can come back to that. I think one moment that I really remember is doing um, the first route that I climbed that was rated 8A uh, when I was 15. That was a really big, big moment, uh, obviously, um, as it always is when you break into different grades. Uh, it was also a moment because uh, I came home, this, I did this route in Corsica on a family holiday and then you come home and then it just it gets downgraded just because you did it <laughs> and it wasn't in Norway. Uh, so it was a, a it was a, a moment of contrasts from uh, from like being really satisfied with accomplishing something and then being hammered down afterwards. Hmm. Not necessarily hammered down, but it was. I think the climbing community was harsher like 20 years ago than what it is now. So uh, it was educational, but a bit harsh. So it was this moment of contrasts that was really good um i remember um i remember completing a trifecta in bukes of like old school routes there are three really classical routes on the obodemont sector in bukes that i had been looking at since we were like 15 16. and these are taboo la rose la vampire and chuka and i did uh, la rose la vampire as the last of those three when we lived in aix-en-provence and uh I was also a moment because I'd been looking at those roots for like four years when we were there on vacation. And then suddenly you'd done done them all three. (laughs) Uh, So that was quite cool.
0: (laughs) What an amazing experience. I I think so many people listening to this can relate. Like you, especially for those of us that started later in life, you know, like not as six year old kids or whatever, we can just remember these moments of seeing something and it just being like, oh, wow, that's that thing, you know. And then. A few years later, you've climbed it, or you've you've climbed all these classic ones at this cliff, and um, it's such an empowering feeling that just feeds that like want to see what else is possible, you know?
2: Yeah, definitely, and it, it sort of like represents more than a than a grade. Uh, it represents something that has been in your dreams for a while. I remember bringing home a postcard of Antoine de Menestrel, like this classical um, picture where he's um, where he's biting on a rose, doing the rose move on La Rose et la Vampire uh and been looking at that for a long time and then then you've then you've done it and it's not it's not that it's really hard or anything i've I've done things that are way harder but it's just that that accomplishment um which is which is cool.
0: Just for context, how difficult are those three routes?
2: Uh Taboo and chuka are eight A plus routes okay. French eight A plus so thirteen C uh, so for us.
0: 13C. Mm-hmm. Yeah
2: and then um de Vampire is 8B, 13 D
0: got it okay
2: and then um then yeah like most most recently I, d- I did a first ascent of a route last fall in in October um which i I've, I've given nine eight uh, which is the hardest thing I've done ever uh, and that was I felt that I I had one really big gap in my repertoire as a climber uh, and that has been like projecting something that's Really hard, maybe maybe too hard, uh, but just sticking with it, uh, mm. and then seeing if it, if it goes or not. So, and then COVID happened, and the gyms closed, and all the activities for the kids got shut down. So suddenly you had more time. So I decided to like invest like a training season throughout the winter, and then just a whole outdoor season on on just that project uh, to see. If it was possible and if it wasn't then I'd at least I tried and then so I, I I don't know how many days it took me that season I'd been trying it on and off for a few years but I like, I think maybe 40 30 or 40 days that okay. season so I think I had three days on different routes uh, that season last year so that was quite that was also like more a manifestation of a projecting process that I really missed in my own climbing more than like like the great but obviously, the grades do matter, so
0: how long had you spent on other projects before that
2: uh seven days
0: okay, wow, yeah, that's a big difference. <laughs> that's a big difference that was a step it was a step up <laughs> yeah how was that experience for you was did you enjoy the process? Do you think you'll do something like that again
2: uh yes, and no, I really enjoyed the process uh actually uh, it was really cool to be that psyched on something for such a long time um i would never had that you know that projecting experience where you fall off quite high and then you'll never get up there again Mm. i never had that so it was fun like i made high points until i clipped the chains so it might have been turning into a nightmare if i started falling off earlier again Mm. (laughs) um yeah um so and you do get mentally disturbed throughout a year of that projecting process. And I'm not sure if I'm able to to focus that much on one single thing once again. I mean, I, I had to have a sit down with my wife in April and just explaining that this is <laughs> this is really important. So I had I just have to prioritize this over family dinners and over everything else. And then COVID made all those decisions way easier. I think this year it would have been impossible to do it the same.
0: Just because of all the distractions and different opportunities and things.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's like you could always prioritize, but I do actually want to spend time with my family as well. So, like to skip or skip everything that we do together as a family for me to go on an egocentric trip down to one crag to do one route. I'm not sure if I'm able to do that process or justify that process uh, in in like the normal daily life. Mm. Um, So, it was a good opportunity last year
0: yeah I'm sure that that conversation i mean explaining how important it is to your wife like that's so important, but also I'm just reminding her like this isn't f- gonna be forever, you know, this is like something that's really important right now and it will end, and there will be a different balance, you know, moving forward
2: yeah, hopefully, yeah, <laughs> it could have never ended <laughs> <laughs> right then, but but then then it's like you're you're satisfied for like three days <laughs> I was like, all right what's next <laughs> what's next then right now but i think that's that's <laughs> like yeah you, you have these voices inside your head now we, we talked a lot about this martin line that the minute you do something you just you just up the ante a bit and then you right. go further so this has actually been sticking around for quite a bit longer though that, that satisfaction but still it's like you, you you're done yeah, I mean, happy, happiness in, in that context is just fluctuating. It just takes you to the next next sweet thing.
0: Right, right. Such a common human tendency. Yeah, I'm glad it stuck a little bit longer than three days after years <laughs> of committing to the same climb. That's good to hear. <laughs> well, Martin, welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> so I had asked uh, Stian...
3: It's hard with the uh, internet and stuff up here, you know. It's, yeah.
0: Yeah. Sorry. No worries at all. No worries at all. Um I'll catch you up a little bit. So I'd been talking to Steon about a day in the life or a week in the life. Like what does that look like for you? I'd love to hear you answer the same question. And then um we've been talking about some of his proudest climbing accomplishments and I'd love to hear about some of yours as well.
3: Yeah, sure. Um no I, if uh, it's a typical day, I could um actually describe this day because I think it's quite typical. of my day. Uh, so I actually live in Trondheim, which is in the middle of Norway. Uh, now I'm up in the north of Norway. Um, it's a 13 hours drive up here. I drove up here because I wanted to do a bit of spare spearfishing uh, on the way and also while being up here. So today I've been route setting for eight hours and then I tested the routes, came home, had some food. Now I'm doing this uh, podcast uh, with you and later on this evening I'll probably go Spear fishing and shoot a halibut that weighs 50 kilos. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> That's not a difficult day, but I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, like um, Stian uh, said, I tend to have no breaks. So I tend to feel my days quite full. i really tired and I have to like stay in bed and sleep for a couple of days. And then I do the same all over again for a couple of weeks. And then I get tired again. So I think that's like I get to experience a lot and do a lot, but it's really hard to or at least now earlier it was easier for me to have focus on the climbing and do hard things because you kind of need to have focus to do hard things. So I think that's that's actually hard because there are so many things that's fun to do and it's so much to climb so much fun to climb a lot. So yeah, projecting and sending hard things is yeah it tends to be hard for me to do, but that's a typical day,
0: okay. We could have a whole podcast about this, I'm sure, but if you have any <laughs> advice or or thoughts that come to the top of your mind, I'd love to hear how do you balance your energy that you put into root setting with your own climbing and training because that is like the yeah. greatest challenge. like so many root climbers become root climbers because they love rock climbing, they want to build a life around it. Uh, They want to be in the industry, you know, but it's, it's brutal. I mean, I don't have very many friends who seem to be able to sustain it and climb well without just being injured all the time.
3: Yeah, it's very hard. I think I, when did I quit my job? I think it was like, yeah, six years ago. And then I had a couple of years of climbing where I did pretty well in climbing. And since then it's just gone downhill, huh? So I think I'm way, way weaker now than I was when I had like a normal job. So it's not a good idea if you want to climb really hard, but if you want to have like the opportunity to climb a lot and like uh, sort of uh, plan your own working year and travel. Yeah, that is, that is kind of a good plan, but don't expect to do really hard stuff because you're always tired. It's, I mean, it's today I set 10 routes uh, from yeah, easy route set up until maybe like, I don't know, 7C, 7C plus, and then you have to test them. And then you can't really train afterwards. And I think the testing and the root setting is just, it's just draining your body. You don't get fit from it at all. Mm. So it is really hard. I think what I've learned the last year though, or maybe the last two years is, I don't do like a lot of, I don't plan my training a lot. But what I do is that I train hard when I don't root set because normally I can set for a week and then I have one or two weeks off, so I train hard in that time. Maybe I take like a couple of days off after work is finished, and then I train and then I don't train while I root set because it's just too much. Okay, but it is a harder. A lot of climbers want to root set and climb hard, and it's it's really hard. Huh? Mm.
0: Do you enjoy it? Have you thought about going back to engineering, or do you do you love what you do now?
3: Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot about that. Um, I like it. I like uh, setting boulders and I like setting for comps. It's fun. I don't like... Because I don't set like daily in a gym uh, where I live. I travel and do route setting and then if I travel somewhere and stay there for a week, I probably set like 50 routes in five days or something and then it's just... It's not fun because the routes are... They're quite easy, huh? Some of them are fun, of course, but a lot of the routes are just super easy routes. with just... an you don't have to think when you set them, you just put the holes on the wall. So it's not so interesting. So I think a lot whether or not it's sustainable to do this work for many years to come. I mean, my wife is uh, 30 now. And if we are going to have kids, it's probably going to be like in a couple of years. I don't know. Uh, And I don't think it's sustainable if we get kids because it's too much uh, traveling. Mm. But... um, yeah, time will tell. Maybe we sell a lot of books, so we don't have to reset so much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I hope so for your sake. Yeah. I I hope that I hope that this conversation helps with that as well. Um, tell You're me, an say that again.
3: Are you an engineer?
0: Yeah, I studied uh, material science engineering. Yeah, yeah, so I worked in aerospace for like seven years.
3: Are you happy to leave it behind?
0: I am happy to leave it behind, yeah. But I can relate to what you're saying. Like you you have this idea in your mind that if you get into the climbing industry in some capacity or just have a lot more time climbing, it'll like be magic, you know, it'll be awesome and you'll just start crushing everything. And it's, it's not really that simple. And I've been, it's been a reminder that, you know, actually having some amount of structure in your life and having kind of a built-in routine and being able to plan around work can work really well for progressing at climbing and making sure that you're not overdoing it. Um, I think I had more intention and focus when I was training, when I had that cubicle job. Yep. And now, you know, I can travel, I can go chase the weather and things like that. And it just makes you feel a little bit more scattered and fragmented and less focused, but it's a lot more fun. Like I'm loving it, I'm enjoying it, but I'm I've, I've been kind of thinking about lately, like what does it look like for me to create a little bit more create some constraints in my life that help me find that focus, whether that's just like picking a very, very specific goal and being okay with not climbing as many things as possible. Um, or even building in like a work season and training season where I'm in a gym, you know, and, and just spending more time working on business things. But yeah, overall, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to leave it behind. Yeah. 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 What about some of your proudest climbing accomplishments, Martin?
1: hmm
3: yeah um i've done more in bouldering than in lead i have a really hard time uh, like keeping focus over a long time and it seems easier to do boulders quite fast if you're going to do really hard routes it takes a lot of time uh, i've tried tors hammer in flatanger quite a lot i haven't been able to do it i go there like i start a project in spring and I'm pretty strong when I get there and I can do the moves quite easily. And then I start to get the endurance to maybe link the whole thing, but then I'm too weak to do the moves. So I can't get through the bottom. So it's really hard for me. I I mean, I lose patience. So I stay there for a couple of weeks and then I just start doing easier stuff. It's just, I find it really hard, but bouldering, I have done some things that I'm quite happy with. I think actually like my proudest, well, i say I have two things that I've done that I'm quite proud about. The first one is probably an FA at Wingsound called uh, Wolverine that i projected for quite some time. I tried it over uh, like a couple of years. I don't think I was strong enough in the beginning. But then after coming back from Hueco the first time we were there, I was able to do like the correct and do it to the top quite fast. But then it's quite a lot harder to do like the perks from the beginning but then I knew I could do it so then I projected it quite seriously though uh, for probably a half year and I did it in winter and it was yeah I had like not a I wouldn't say like a competition with Tilo to do it first Tilo is like a Norwegian climber it's very strong but we were both trying it and I got a bit stressed that like, he was getting really close but he lived in Oslo and I live in Trondheim, which is way closer so <laughs> It was easier for me to go there and try it more than for him. Uh, And it was like, in the end, it was like a bit stressing, you know, because sometimes it's just fun to uh, project something. And if you are, but I really wanted to do that one first. Uh, And then it was a bit stressing in the end because he got so close. Then I did it though, and I was really happy. (laughs) (laughs) So that's probably like uh, one of my hard, or it was was the first really hard first ascent though, uh, which was really cool. And I also like first time Nalle and Nalle Hukkataival, went to Wingsan. I was trying it with him and he wasn't able to do it in a couple of trips. And I mean, if he had rain and shitty conditions, but it just felt really cool to do something that was really hard. And I knew it was hard because really strong people had tried it. Mm. So probably that was like the coolest, uh, like doing something hard experience. Uh, But I think maybe my best experience was uh, repeating a boulder that burnt Sanger put up on an island outside of Wingsan. It's called Shantaram. And um, it's like a long, really long boulder, probably 15, 20 moves. And I was projecting it basically by myself. Niki Seria, the the Italian, he was there in the end. And Tilo was also there trying it a bit uh, in the end. But I had so many trips where I'd draw my car out there on a day trip. It's a three hours drive, and borrow the boat and draw the boat like a small shitty boat for <laughs> half an hour. Parked the boat, dragged it onto the shore, and walked all my pads up there. It took like maybe five hours just to get to the boulder. Wow! And tried it for like it was always so cold. There's like a wind tunnel there, so it's really cold. And tried it for like a couple of two or three hours, and then um, I then packed up my shit and. Yeah, took the long way back. I did that for maybe, I don't know, 10 days or something. And um, I kind of like that experience though. Uh, it's draining when you do it, but it feels like an adventure, even though it's quite close to your own home and you've been there many times. It's, yeah, it feels a bit tougher than just doing like a boulder really close to the city.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So I think maybe that was my proudest achievement to finally do that boulder, I think.
0: And uh, I asked Dion to do this just for context. What are the grades of those things that you've just been talking about? That first ascent. Did you pr- propose a grade for that?
3: Yeah, I proposed 8B plus for it. Uh, a, b plus? I think B14. it is. I think it's a hard one. Uh, yeah, B14. Uh, it's probably a hard one. Um, Shantaram. I probably think it's 8C, but um, I'm not totally sure. Bad only said it was like his hardest. Uh, thing ever and for me it felt harder than other 8b pluses i had done at that time uh and nikki doesn't say anything about grades so it's really hard to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i don't know probably yeah. like it's a plus or eight C. don't know
0: yeah Great. Well, thank you both for this. It's it's really fun to get to know you guys a little bit before we dive into uh, this book that you wrote. I I just think it's important to, it's fun for me to get to know you, but it's also so important for the listeners to get a sense of who you guys are. Um, But let's dive into this book. I've got a bunch of notes in front of me, a bunch of questions for you guys. How did the idea for the book come about and where did the name come from? Let's start with that. And Stian, you haven't been talking for a while. So um, if you have thoughts, let's start with you.
2: Oh, it's good. I can just I can sit back and and have a beer. It's <laughs> uh, <was> quite relaxing. <laughs> um, so I think the thought of writing a book had been on my mind for uh, for quite some time. I'd done my physical therapy education. I'd done my um, coaching education, and I'd coached the Norwegian national team for for four or five years. And you start to accumulate quite a lot of knowledge from different sources. And uh, at least in Norway, there was lacking a book talking about training for climbing, basically. And I thought that it would be cool to try to condensate every like all the connect all the dots that you'd learn both as a climber and as a pco and as a coach um and and get all all of that into a book um but i needed someone without any breaks (laughs) so so, um so i told martin we were um i was going to tronline to do a lecture and they picked me up at the airport and we drove out to go bouldering and it was in January and just snowing and shit. And I just said that. Yeah, I've been, I've been thinking about writing a book about training climbing. And they just looked at me. I was like, Yeah, let's do that. And then <laughs> that was in twenty seventeen, January twenty seventeen. And then by October twenty eighteen, the uh, the book came out in, in Norway. Wow. So that was uh, that was kind of how it was born uh, and. The name, the climbing Bible, very pretentious name. Um, <laughs> it was I mean, we we wrote we wrote this book for for Norway. We we never imagined that it would be something that we should should take internationally, and we sort of have. I hope at least we have the street cred in Norway to name a book, the climbing Bible, and uh, it was it was our editor who just said that. Like with all this content, this is like a climbing Bible. You should just call it the climbing Bible. And It was like, yeah, that's cocky enough. <laughs> so let's do that. And then now in 2022, seeing that this book comes out in Italy w- with that title, it feels like, holy shit, people have, they they, they must think that we're absolutely cocky. <laughs> but yeah.
0: Nice. So the first version of it was written in Norwegian, and now it's been translated into a bunch of other languages. Yeah. And I'm sitting that's here with true. the with both books with the English version right in front of me. Um, that's another question I had. So you've got the climbing Bible, technical, physical, and mental training for rock climbing uh, with a nice photo of Mina Leslie Vujastic on the cover. Uh, She's been on the podcast. And then the Climbing Bible Practical Exercises. So why two books? And how do these two books interact with one another?
3: No, I don't think when we started the first book, uh, we thought about writing a second. Uh, And especially after finishing it, I wasn't all that excited about uh, writing a second (laughs) book. I was kind of fed up with uh, writing the first book. But um, the first book... Have you, um, yeah, you probably read a bit of it and mm-hmm. like uh, seen seen it. Uh, it's the theoretical frameworks for the different types of training for climbing. So we have the mental, you have the physical, and you have the technical climbing, and you also have the tactics and uh, the general, uh, like uh, the general training and also um, all of the um, the injuries and how to prevent them. And it was just so much. And we had some exercises to train the different uh, things. And we had people reading through the books, uh, saying that, okay, maybe you need, you should uh, include some other exercises, uh, like explaining how to train the different things. And we included some of them in the first book, but there are just so many that we used, uh, Stian has been a coach for basically his whole, uh, climbing career. And I've been as well, except for maybe the last uh, five, I haven't been a coach uh, then. And, um, we felt we needed to give then again the readers in Norway though all these exercises and it was just enough to fill another book huh so yeah i think like the climbing bible is the book that you have at home and you read and then the practical exercises is the book that you bring to the gym mm. and get the inspiration you know to try different exercises uh, for the for the session you're having
0: mm-hmm. yeah and who are these books for? Like, What need were you seeing in the climbing community? Who was your audience when you were writing The Climbing Bible? Is it for every, everybody or for newer climbers that are confused and don't have information? I would
3: say there is something for everybody uh, in both books. Uh, but uh, in relation to some other books that are on the market, I would say we have more uh, for... Uh, beginners and intermediate climbers. uh, Whereas I think some of the other books addresses the more advanced climber and they tend to focus quite a lot on the physical training. uh, Whereas we want to focus, and I think we do a lot on the technical aspects and also um, quite a lot on the mental aspects and of course the physical aspects of training as well. But yeah. Uh, So maybe in relation to other books, more for the beginners and in
2: and intermediate
0: climbers. Okay. Steon, do you have any additional thoughts?
2: Yeah, I think it was it was quite important for us to write a book that was comprehensive for everyone, uh, regardless of their climbing experience. Um, I I think I've read all of the all of the books that were in a language that I could understand uh, when it came to training for climbing before we wrote this. And uh, even though most of them are really good, they're quite technical when it comes to how they explain things. And, uh, and especially when it comes to the physical aspect of performance. And I didn't really find it necessary to replica all of that and put it into a book. Uh, so we wanted to make it, easier to understand and we had a really good editor who is a really keen climber herself and she's like she said i, I don't want to feel uh, dumb quotation <laughs> uh, when i read a book i want to i want to get this feeling of understanding and uh, all the light bulbs going off and um and that i can that i can relate to what you're writing about so if, if i don't understand your writing then you need to rewrite it Basically, mm. so we did that a lot, and I think the challenge with that is you'll probably lose like the high end climbers maybe that look into the nitty gritty details on how to do like the perfect dead protocol or or these kinds of things. But then again, when it comes to training and uh, and exercise, then you have principles over methods. So I, I hope we we had done a job in the climbing bible to present and explain the principles and then you can adapt and individualize the methods based on those principles Mm. Um, so there should be something in there also for the higher end climbers but but like martin said then it's written in a way that it makes it comprehensible also for those with less climbing experience
0: Mm -hmm. so stian you and i um, actually connected through ronvi Ambold. Um, She's become a friend of mine. And I know that you guys have worked together for a long time and you helped her rehab after her injury. So I actually reached out to her and have some questions for you guys from her. And I want to kick off kind of a more a discussion about like your philosophy of improving at climbing with this question from Ronvi. She wrote, he's pretty physical in his training program. She's talking about you, Steon. Have him discuss that and then what he thinks about the mental and technique games and where they fit in. So I thought that was really interesting because you and I had a conversation a few weeks ago and you talked a lot about the mental and the technique sides of climbing and how that often gets missed in the modern age where we're so obsessed with the quantifiable things, the the physical training and things like that. But you guys also have done quite a lot of physical assessments. And I actually was just listening to you on the Lattice podcast, talking to Tom Randall and, and talking about your 9C assessment and some of the different physical performance factors or, or strength factors that we can use to assess our climbing and find weaknesses and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I'd be curious to hear about your philosophy when it comes to coaching and helping people improve. How do you think about the physical needs of? Of climbers and how would you weigh that against the mental and the technical side of the sport
2: uh, should i go first since it was uh was for yeah. online because yeah. i could yeah I, I guess for her specifically it's um like the the last over the last years it has been it's it's a lot easier to be an online coach and focus on the physical part because you can quantify it and measure it uh so so then obviously if you make and if you make a training program for something for someone it's a lot easier to tell them how to do dead hangs or how to do a bouldering uh, bouldering circuit than to actually have a look at them while climbing it, it takes a lot more more work so maybe that's also maybe that's also as a bit of the explanation um i think Maybe Europeans and uh, in Norway as well. We've been traditionally focused on the physical aspect of climbing, I think. And then Martin, can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we come from this exercise physio- physiology world where we try to try to use that method into to becoming better. Whereas you look at uh, the Japanese climbers, they spend uh, way less time on on the physical aspect on how to train and more on the movement side. They seem to be doing pretty well, I guess they have fifty percent in the Bouldering finals every time in the world Cup, so <laughs> yeah, I think that I think that we can learn a lot from how they approach climbing through movement and the mental aspect um and it's always a pendulum swinging, I guess, so it like it, it has been more on on the physical aspect, I think traditionally, both in Norway and other European countries, and then maybe it's starting to swing a bit more to the technical and mental
0: aspects. Martin, do you have anything to add to that? Nope. Okay, great. <laughs> so in um, in kind of talking about, like I, I wanna hear about you guys as coaches and you guys as high level climbers who have who have observed many, many climbers um, throughout your lives. And in presenting all this information in this book and having so many different elements to, to learn about and focus on, from all the different aspects of physical training and mental training and, and techniques we can work on and visual, visualization and um, confidence and all sorts of different things. I'd love to hear like what patterns you guys have observed. And I have a list of questions here about what keeps people stuck. And, and I'm gonna ask a series of questions and, and we can kind of go through it in whatever way makes sense to you guys. But what keeps a 5.11 climber stuck? And what keeps people that are newer from reaching 5.12? Um, and then how does that change as, as we get better at climbing, and as we get more experience? Like, do you see different themes pop up for people that are stuck at 512 and can't break into 513? What about people who've been climbing 513 for a long time, but can't break into 514 or, or feel stuck at the 513 range? Yeah, I'm really interested to hear if there's trends or themes that have shown up for you guys. Martin, do you want to go first?
3: Uh, Yeah. You want me to talk about how to go to the next grade or like trends uh, Trends in general that we see or that I see?
0: Yeah, t- trends that you see, like what are the most common areas where people get stuck at different levels?
3: Yeah, it's a wide question where to begin. Um, I think that a lot of the climbers nowadays, they train in really good gyms with quite decent route setting. And that's one of the things that we tried to highlight in the second book with some of the exercises in there is that if you train at a gym that has a finite amount of boulders there's not going to be all that many boulders that challenges the thing that you as a climber should focus on with your weaknesses and strengths and everything i mean if you want to start to become more dynamic that has kind of been my focus for Many many years because I'm quite I'm quite a static climber whereas Dion is more dynamic. Maybe there is like ten boulders or five or ten boulders at the gym that is suitable for me to train these like abilities or yeah dynamic movements. And uh, I think that the climbers today they need to learn how to train different techniques and the different fundamentals in climbing without training it on the set boulders. They need to be able to use the walls that are there with the holds and make it up themselves. I mean, when we started climbing the bouldering walls, they were just spray walls with a bunch of holes. And all we did was to make up our own boulders. So then if you do that, you can always have almost like an unlimited amount uh, of boulders that make you train for what you need to train on. So um, I think that's like... The trend I see now: people they just go to the gym and they try really hard to do this boulder. And once they have done it, they never try it again. They're basically done with it. Maybe they try it as a warm-up if it was an easy one. The next time they come there, but um, so how can we like make them train technique and get better uh, technical climbers with the boulders that are there? And let's take pinching for example so one of the exercises is to not pinch the holds on the boulders that you are trying so if you're not able to pinch them uh, if you have a side pole and you pinch it you can lean your ass out of the wall uh, and you can climb technically quite bad but if you only climb with three finger open-handed you would have to stay on the side uh, to be able to use the hold so it makes you if you have done a boulder with pinching maybe you can try later on to use only four fingers like the side and then maybe three fingers open and two finger open hmm. just practice the boulders and maybe then if you want to start doing some dynamic movements like an easy dino or like a, like an easy flick if you if you're a young climber and you want to um, start competing you need to be able to do the flick movements you need to be able to do the clutch movements the pogo's everything why can't you just start doing that on jugs on the vertical wall and practice the movements. You don't have to find the perfectly set boulder to practice it because you need to learn how the movement is done. Uh, and yeah, just find a couple of jugs and do a small flick. it's kind of hard to explain it with only words, but I'm trying to do it with my hands as well. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that that all makes that, I think that all makes perfect sense. It's such an interesting phenomenon that we have or challenge that we have where. We have so much access to such great climbing gyms now. It's it's um it's really easy to just go cragging at the gym and just have tons yeah. of fun and just only climb on things that are really fun and I mean as as long as I've been climbing I still default to that every time I go into a new gym, you know, even if I have a training day that I'm supposed to do. You go in there, you've never climbed in there before. It's so tempting to just climb like 30 or 40 new boulders and get completely distracted from from what it you
3: you can't do that,
0: yeah, yeah it messes up your skin it's you know the chances of you actually like doing any of the thing that you were intending to focus on is very low, like you said, maybe there's one or two boulders in there that are relevant for what you know what you should be focusing on, but modern gyms are almost like designed to distract us um yeah. from the focus of of specific intentional training and I
1: think, like,
3: the trend now I mean not to not to be an asshole, but I think like ten or 20 years ago, the climbers were better at climbing. Now Mm. they are worse at climbing, but they are way stronger. Mm. And they are so strong on hanging on the fingerboard. And I mean, yeah, that's nice, but you still need to be able to climb to use it. Right. So I would say that's like the biggest trend of today, but it doesn't really answer how to get from 5.11 to 5.12 low
0: that's okay i mean i i just have a list of questions but you know the the questions just serve to lead to interesting comments from you guys and and this is all very interesting and helpful so this is great um steon do you have thoughts either on what martin said or on the the question of themes and what you see keeping people stuck or where where climbers get hung up at different ability levels
2: i think if we can say the lower levels like yes, just like five five eleven to five twelve basically just about climbing you need to climb more uh, and then you have some you have a ceiling on how much you can climb if you don't vary stuff so enable uh, like in order to to climb a lot you need to vary a lot and probably because of the gyms as well and all the bouldering gyms then then people are doing more more boulders they're doing commercial commercially set boulders and uh, they think that that is transferable to climbing a route outside but it's not so in order to, to break through that you just need to change change around on what you're doing like right? what, what are you climbing on uh, and then just climb as much as you can and that will take you to to that next level basically and then the higher up the ladder you go then you sort of like need to break it down to individual preferences, I guess. Some people are really strong, uh, but they might be mentally weak. They might be stressed out. They might be afraid to, to do stuff on lead, on bolts. Um, and then to acknowledge to acknowledge that, to, to say that I can't do this route because I'm over-gripping like a motherfucker because I, I, I'm so scared when I'm one meter above the bolt then the answer is not to go home and do more dead hangs to be stronger. <laughs> the answer is maybe to do more lead climbing on easier stuff and to practice taking falls. So but that, that is just one direction. And there could be other other ones that have that are really mentally strong and can push push hard, but they're not physically strong enough to do whatever they want to do. But like Martin said, then the major trend in climbing is that climbing has gone from only climbing to training for climbing. And people are getting really good at training for climbing, but might not be climbing enough to accomplish their goals.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a trend that I hear from just about every coach that I talk to on this podcast. And it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but you guys have also done a lot of physical assessing with climbers. And there is you know climbing is a physical sport to some degree you know if you don't have the finger strength to hold onto the holds it doesn't matter how good you are at moving on the wall um how important are the different physical characteristics that we need as, as climbers you know finger strength upper body pulling core i know you guys have done the the 9c test i'll link to the video of you guys doing the 9c test with magnus actually for people that haven't seen it because it's it's just entertaining if nothing else but uh yeah, how how important are each of those different physical components?
3: Well, they're weighted the same in the test, so maybe they're the same. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean, finger strength is by far the most uh, important. Yeah, and probably then comes, yeah, correct me if you think I'm wrong, Stian, but then probably comes pulling and then probably um, like core in the end. But yeah, finger strength by far. There are so many climbers who are very, very strong in the fingers, and yeah, their physique is not so good. Besides that, so it is the most important for sure. But it depends on the style, though. I mean, if you want to climb uh, vertical, um, really crimpy boulders, then finger strength and flexibility takes you a long way. But if you want to go to echo you will need uh, some uh, upper body and core
1: mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. strength as well.
2: Yeah. I, I I agree. Like especially maximum maximum finger strength in relation to body weight is what is like highlighted as the most most critical performance factor of all the f- physical aspects. Um, so it makes a lot of sense to work that specifically. Uh, but it's it's a bit like it's a bit like downhill skiing, I guess. Like you could be the best on the World Cup circuit on downhill skiing when it comes to squatting. Uh, but you might not be the best racer. Mm. So and it, and that will also depend on on the slope you're at and the, and the surface you're riding on. And so it's the same with with climbing as well that you have these key performance factors from from the physical aspect, but they might not help you everywhere. And I, I find it really fascinating. Like when you look at some of the best boulders in the world, outdoor boulders, physically in their Arms and upper body—they're not really that strong. They have insanely strong fingers in relation to their body weight, obviously, but they're not really that strong. I think it was Giuliani Cameroni who, who like, posted a video of him doing his first one arm, and then he had done several eight C boulders. And then you have people in the gym doing four one arms, but they can't do a seven C boulder. So it's like it, you—you know—you have to know what tree you're barking up <laughs> if, you, if you want to go somewhere.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. I think Martin, you had a great point there. I've, uh, I've felt for a long time, very strongly that, you know, we tend to just lump strength all together in one big bucket. But I think making a delineation between finger strength and then other body strength is huge. Like I, I I agree. I think finger strength, I, I meet so many climbers that, um, that climb at a high level with varying degrees of body strength. Like some of them have weak shoulders and weak arms and weak core. And some of them are insanely strong in those areas, but it seems like they all have really strong fingers and um, they can kind of adapt their climbing style around other physical limitations or strengths that they have. But that seems like the real common denominator. I don't know any real high performers that actually truly have weak fingers. You know, some are better at getting the most Possible performance out of their finger strength than others, but yeah, that does seem to be like the the clear number one.
2: And I think there's quite a lot of interesting research coming out, uh, and and will probably be more and more over the years to come. Uh, like on on which factors to predict uh, level. So for now, we have we have a finger strength to weight ratio, which is quite good. And so like you can categorize climbers depending on how 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 strong they are in the fingers in relation to body weight but then Dave giles and the guys from from lattice they're doing their critical force testing to see like for how long you can sustain uh sustain your force uh which seems to be also quite predictive on, on climbing level and then you just need to test a lot of climbers and The more popularity climbing gains, then the more research will be done on it. So it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out in the future.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Frictitious Climbing. Today, I wanna tell you about two of my favorite products from Frictitious. First up is the Easyboard. The Easyboard is hands down the most versatile hangboard that I have ever seen. It's portable, meaning you can take it to the crag, hang it from a tree or from a bolt at the sport cliff. But what makes the Easyboard unique is that it comes with a mounting plate that allows it to be used as a traditional hangboard. In just a few seconds, you can mount it above your doorway at home in any of four different orientations and use it just like a regular hangboard. It's light, it's compact, and it covers all your bases. The second product I want to talk about is the hangboard doorway mount. The hangboard doorway mount is perfect for climbers who don't have a great spot for a hangboard or who can't drill into their wall. It's a great way to train in your home or apartment, and you can even have Frictitious install one of their hangboards for you so when it arrives, you can be up and training in minutes. Head over to frictitiousclimbing.com and use code NUGGET at checkout for free shipping on your order. That's Frictitious climbing.com there's a link right there in your podcast app if you need to know how to spell it and use code nugget at checkout for free shipping on your order this episode is also brought to you by arcteryx When Jordan Cannon, a young climber infatuated with climbing history, meets climbing legend Mark Hudon, a Yosemite big wall free climbing pioneer, they form an unlikely partnership around a common goal. Jordan wants to free climb the free rider on El Cap in a day, and Mark hopes to free the route in as many days as it takes and accomplish his lifelong goal of free climbing El Capitan. Follow Their Story in Free as Can Be, a short climbing film brought to you by Arc'teryx. I just watched the film earlier today. It's 31 minutes long. It's so well done. I loved it. It's a story of climbing partnership and adventure, and if you love this podcast and especially if you loved my episode with Jordan Cannon, episode 115, one of my favorite episodes, then I know you'll love the film. So check it out. Head over to YouTube and search for Arc'teryx Free as Can Be. Or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Once again, you can head over to YouTube and search for Archteric's Free As Can Be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Archteric presents Free As Can Be, and we hope you enjoy the film. And now, back to the show. I'm curious, I, I, it's been a while since I've watched it, but in the 9C test video, do you guys break down different relative finger strength levels and how that correlates to climbing ability? Because I know that like everyone listening to this wants to know where they stack up and they want to know, you know, how to, to what degree they should be continuing to focus on hangboarding and things like that. But do you guys break that out? Like, do you is it a clear linear or um, is there clear correlation, I guess, between like dead hanging max strength on your fingers and climbing ability
3: yeah but the thing with the 9c test is that we like i said i tried to say earlier we we had the uh, I mean finger strength was just uh, one of four uh, components uh, Or i mean it, it's included in the hanging in the bar thing as well though but um it was just one out of four uh, and it was it was linear so but um how much you can do in a pull up or how uh, long you could uh all the front lever or an L-sit gave you just as many points, you know? So the the correlation to how hard you could climb uh, route-wise was... um, The fingers should probably have been weighed quite a lot heavier, I guess. At least twice, maybe three times as much as um, core. Mm -hmm. The test was supposed to be easy, uh, easy for people to do. And um, yeah, that's the reason it is like
0: that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting.
3: I mean, it works. Use it as like a test for yourself and do a retest later and see if like training has made you stronger. Mm. But uh, the correlation to grade can probably, yeah. <laughs> it, might be, <laughs> it might be a bit off. If uh, yeah, it, it, it seems to be quite yeah. good though for uh, experienced climbers. It's really bad for... Especially like uh, beginner to intermediate boys because they're so strong on pull-ups and some of the um, yeah, some of the tests. So they, um, yeah, they're supposed to climb really hard and they cr- climb <laughs> not so hard. So they get really pissed. But
2: uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is the problem. This is the problem with the uh, with uh with the internet. Basically, you can't really seem <laughs> to explain things enough. Or, or uh-huh. uh, right. So, so that I mean, the the grade conversion for that test was more entertainment than anything. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, Mm -hmm. it was a test battery for people to do, uh, through through COVID. And then, then people, of of course, get hung up on the grades, which was quite, quite fun. It gave quite a lot of fun out of it. We didn't really, we're not very big on social media or, or very interested. Uh, I guess but it was we sort didn't of like anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of like missed that it had gained popularity and then um I think it, it makes room for some good discussions. I mean if you are like we discussed with Tom on the Lattice podcast as well like if you if you get a high testing score but you, you don't really climb that well then what should you do? Like you asked about sticking points. So like if you if you already do body weight plus plus your body weight almost in, in dead angst on 20 mil edges, which a lot of climbers do, but you're not breaking into the next level in your climbing, then probably more maximum dead angst on 20 mil edges isn't what you should focus on doing. Right. And and I used to do this explanation with Thomas with Well that you say so you, so you take soccer and Premier League soccer and you measure the running distance and and the capacity and you have you have all the measurements of what it takes to be uh, a high level midfielder in premier league soccer but you haven't really touched the ball so like you can have all these physical capabilities but if you can't really pass or dribble a ball then you won't be playing midfield on primarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the problem with with, with drawing all these conclusion out of purely physical tests that you have some correlation data for maximum dead hangs or maximum hanging finger strength in relation to body weight. But to say that that will predict the grade you can climb with the perfect technique, like we said in, in the video with Magnus, then that, that's obviously a, a very bold statement if you want that to be true.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it seems like a useful assessment tool for those who are willing to be really honest with themselves, you know, like it can highlight a very clear weakness, whether that's a physical limitation or what probably happens more likely is, you know, young stoked dudes take this test because they're the ones that are watching it on YouTube and think it's really cool. And then they're they're stronger, they're underperforming their strength, right? Like they're they're performing a lot better on this test than they actually do on the rock. Which just means that they need to spend less time training in the gym and more time rock climbing, probably. So, th- those are like the really obvious conclusions, I guess, that that can be drawn from taking a test like this. But then, yeah, of course, it gets climbing so complicated. Like, there's so many different things that show up. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I liked your comment, Martin. I think the I had the same feeling. Like, the finger strengths should be weighted really heavily. And I've I use myself as a as a case in this. Like, I think I am very strong in a lot of ways relative to how hard I climb when it comes to like pulling and core and front levers and deadlifts and things like that. But I perform better than my finger strength whenever I've done like a finger strength test. So those two things are kind of interesting. Like I use my ability to do lock offs and things like that to get around finger strength limitations a lot of the time. But when I, like, I think I did like the lattice rung test a number of times over the years and was always my finger strength was always about ten percent lower than you would think it would be based on the, the red points that I'd done, for instance. So it's it can get kind of confusing if you lump it all together.
3: But then again, uh, after climbing below, you you stay in your van and climb all the way around, and then, I guess that's quite normal though, mm. for those types of climbers. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I think you have a. I think you have a, maybe not easier, but. But then again, it's easier to have that, have those capabilities to begin with, like to have that technique and 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 a mindset, and then you see that you could you can just improve a lot on your on your finger strength, and that will probably take you a lot further, especially in outdoor bouldering. Um, whereas, if you have the strength already, I, I mean, it, it seems weird though, but but. It seems like those who already are pretty strong in their fingers, but they lack all these other um other factors in some way they think that they just need to go back and get stronger fingers and It's like, well, you have insanely strong fingers already. there are so many other things that you should should work on, so maybe it's easier when you see that you you lack something in your physical capabilities. Uh, to train those instead of like pinpointing your weaknesses on the technical or mental aspects of it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's, uh, Let's talk about some of the mental stuff because another reason why we get so hung up on the physical parts of training is because it's easy to, it's so much easier for a coach to look at our, you know, performance assessment and say like, here's a clear area of weakness that we can work on. And it's just a lot easier to know what to do and to see progress happening because your numbers are going up on the hangboard or whatever it is. Um, but you know, as you write a lot about in the book, there's so many, there's so much room for growth for all of us on the mental side, the, the technical side, the strategic side of our climbing and, and performance and red pointing and things. Uh, but let's talk about the mental side. So I'd love to ask you both, like, what are what separates climbers with the same Physical and technical abilities, you know, like have you seen that? Have you seen climbers where they they have roughly the same physical abilities and the same technique abilities? Um, What are some of the mental things that can really separate two climbers that are climbing that are performing at different levels who have the same kind of physical abilities and technical abilities?
2: No, it's. um an interesting. I don't think I've ever met two climbers that have the same physical and technical <laughs> capabilities. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but 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 let's let's make it as a as an interesting um, entrance point. Um, I think, especially with uh, tension and arousal and nervousness, seems to separate quite quite a lot of climbers. Uh, to know when to like fire on all cylinders and when to relax. Uh, especially on on routes, but also on boulders, uh, seems to be some something that <clears throat> some people get better than than others. So that could easily separate two climbers with the same technical and physical capabilities. Um, I think that's a, that's a skill, and you you can you can have this on a on a short boulder problem as well. You can have like a very delicate technical intro move or two moves into like a sequence of four or five moves that are really physical and explosive, and then you might have a top-up on top of that. You need to bring your your uh, tension level like mentally op- both up and down over just the course of a short boulder problem. And that, I think that, that could easily separate performance between two climbers, uh, all things equal.
3: Yeah, and I think it's like um, that's on the send of like a specific route or a specific uh, boulder. But it's kind of important to differentiate a bit. I think whether it's projects, as I suppose, me to have those projects because I don't have the patience to deal with them. I just get really, yeah, it just gets really boring for me in the end, and I'll just tend to fade out of it and try something else. Uh, so that's one like mental strength that some people have is this ability to just try it and try it and try it. And actually, I think it's fun for a long time. My wife is like that. She's done some really, uh, some routes that are pretty hard, uh, and she can climb on them for one year, two years. We have friends that have stayed in Spain, uh, doing like 9As and 9Bs, I think, down there. Sindra, isn't it? 9B, Sheila. And they stayed Mm. there for four years, climbing on the same route, Wow! basically every day for four years. To me, it's it's impossible. I cannot understand how they can do it. I would get so tired. So that's like one type of uh, mental strength. And then you have the mental strength uh, of being able to push yourself really hard uh, when you're training. So I've been training a few times with uh, Magnus Mitpo, who's the strongest bastard I know physically. <laughs> I mean, there are so many strong climbers out there, but physically he's such a beast. Um, and I mean, he keeps it pretty simple, or at least he used to do. He just said, don't ever let go. Just tell yourself that you're going to crush this hold every time you go for it. Uh, And have good breaks and everything. But every time you try to go for a hold, don't care whether you break your fingers or whatever happens. Just hold the hold. Uh, And that makes sense, you know. If you're going to train uh, strength, just pull really hard. It makes sense. And um, there's also, like, different mindsets, I find for trying certain boulders. Dian talked about it a bit earlier. But people can like... I mean, we used to be able to get really angry when we were trying really hard boulders. And if you go to Hueco, it helps to get... I mean, for me, it helps to get really angry. I just have to like... If I experience some serious pain on the (laughs) warm-up, it's really good. I get really freaking angry. And I can (laughs) pull super hard. Uh, Or if I know that like a guy has done this boulder and maybe that's like a bad sort of uh, motivation but if i know somebody has done it and i expect to be stronger than this motherfucker i will pull so hard and that helps me a lot on these boulders whereas now i'm getting older and i cannot find this aggression it's really <laughs> it's really annoying yeah <laughs> but then it's made better like because then i find like yeah, if you just go there and climb and have fun and like experience the day and shit, then yeah, it kind of works on long routes, you know. So, mm. yes, yeah, so there are like good ways to find this uh, sort of uh, mental um, sides of yourself. For, yeah. So mental is, um, yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting uh, chapter for sure. That's
0: yeah. I, I love what you just you said. I...
3: Same in Hueco, Steven, you've been there a lot, huh?
0: Yeah. I've spent the last two winters in Waco. Yeah. And it's, I, I, I'm just laughing because I, I can really, uh, I can really relate to what you're saying. When I was younger, when I was like 19 and 20, I just wanted it so bad. Like I would be driving out to the boulders, just like, just like with, you know, gritting my teeth, basically listening to angry music, just like pissed off at this first hard move. And like, I'm going to pull my ass off the ground today, you know? And, uh, I'm, I'm definitely happier now that I've let go of, <laughs> of that angst. <laughs> but uh sometimes I can relate. I'm like, I wish I could find that again. Like where did that fire go? You know, it's yeah. it's still there when I really, really need it, but it's it's uh it's harder to find these days. You're
3: only thirty three, huh? What's that? You're only thirty-three?
0: Thirty-three, yeah.
3: yeah. Losing it earlier. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you find it again, let me know. Wow. <laughs> Tell me what to do. Yeah. <laughs> don't don't
2: don't have kids (laughs) (laughs) I feel feel like all my all my testosterone just went out the window with my second kid like there's nothing there's nothing uh, nothing nothing left (laughs) (laughs) is that lack of sleep or or what nah yeah maybe nice but I I, I do find it a lot harder to to to, tap into to aggression on, on boulders mm. uh, and aggression can obviously be very effective uh, and also very disturbing. But channeled wisely, then aggression can lead to good stuff, especially on on boulders. Um, so you have to I uh, have to dig deeper now. Uh, but I think it's also like you said, when it means something, then then you, you can sort of awaken it. So maybe try to be in situations where where stuff matters more more often and then it'll come back Mm -hmm. in some ways but uh but yeah it's 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 hard to to like quantify all these mental aspects but then it's something to explore i think for each each and every climber um and and to know that these are elements that we can work on i mean sports psychology is huge it's a big field big field of research and and it, it really determines quite a lot on, on performance. And now so far, we just talked about outdoors and projecting, but just imagine competitions. Mm-hmm. Like when you, when you saw climbers in the Olympics last year, they were really nervous because it mattered more. It's like you get this one shot and you've trained for it for a long time. Uh, so, so the situation is way more demanding and they're all pretty similar in physical and technical capabilities. And then maybe it's the ones that come in with the underdogs stamp that performs better because they have nothing to lose. Uh, whereas you have a lot to lose if you were already one of the best in the world coming into the Olympics and to be a favorite. So to learn how to handle that situation, maybe you need an Olympics because you have to <laughs> be in that situation to to experience what happened and then to learn from it. But yeah, I think competitions are 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 something to look at when it comes to like the mental factors.
0: Let's talk about the technical side too, and I think the maybe an interesting way to tackle this would be to hear for each of you guys what have been the things that you have focused on that have led to some of the greatest improvements in your own technical abilities. Whether this is like realizing that you had a specific need or weakness, and then I just would be curious to hear how you go about how you've gone about addressing that and improving that and turning it into a strength if if that makes sense because I don't know like it's easy to talk about technique and have a book and have a bunch of exercises to do and kind of envision like spending more time doing drills on the wall but when I think about myself and what has allowed me to become a better technical climber I, I don't do that very often and that really hasn't resonated with me as much it's more like Watching a lot of really high performing climbers climb, like watching their videos and really studying how they move and then trying to emulate that. Like, you know, for example, Jonathan Segrist, he's someone that I've looked up to forever and I really admired his climbing style. He's such a technician and I just tried to climb like that for years and years and and just had a lot of focus on trying to lock, lock things in and just be very precise and, and very, um, Intentional with every single foot placement and how I grabbed every hold and things like that. And then I got to a point where I was like, okay, I actually am probably climbing too statically a lot of the time. I would benefit a lot from being more aggressive and using momentum more. So then I kind of did the same thing, but copying like Jimmy Webb, you know, studying a lot of his climbing videos and just I actually learned this from Christophe Bichet. Like I had a conversation with him on the podcast and he just, he'll pick somebody and then pretend to be them for weeks at a time. Even like kind of act like them at the climbing gym when he's not climbing. And I thought that was really interesting. So that's something that I've tried and has actually helped a lot. Like I'm going to try to model Jimmy's just aggressiveness on, on the side of a boulder. You know, if I'm trying a, a boulder with more dead points or dinos or dynamic movement or things like that, more power, but yeah, I'd love to to hear from you guys. Do you have like a chapter in your climbing where you focused a lot on a specific technique, and what was it that helped you improve at, at a specific thing?
3: Yeah, I can uh, I can go first on it, uh, Stian. because so I guess we have the same uh, story, just the opposite way. <laughs> uh, it's funny that you mentioned. Um, the copying uh, thing because actually one of the um, exercises in the um, in the second book is um, called copycat which is exactly that try and uh, mimic um, the way uh, another climber does a boulder do it the exact same way and preferably a climber that has other strengths and moves in a different way than yourself so um, it's actually a really good exercise and um, that was meant doing like a single boulder but this can for sure be done for a period of time on all boulders. But uh, I had the exact uh, same experience, I think, as you, Steven, cause I was really, really static. Uh, and I think that was linked to, um, or static in my climbing style. Um, I think that was linked to um, maybe like not a, I wasn't, yeah, I was a bit scared of falling uh, in the beginning, but I always like to be in control of uh, what I'm doing. And uh, now that I've started like freediving, I don't have like super fast uh, progression in it just because I'm a bit scared of it. Uh, and I think it was the same in climbing that I really like to control what I was doing. But at some point uh, when I was not like crimping on a vertical face, uh, I understood that I had to be more dynamic to be able to do a lot of moves. And I think when I was young, I wasn't like uh, willing to admit that I was uh, mimicking Your way of climbing, Stian. (laughs) I would probably think it was someone else. Like, at least tell it to myself. (laughs) But um, I used many years uh, to try and become uh, more dynamic uh, in uh, in my climbing style, and I mean, Stian still laughs at me when I have like a course in dynamic climbing. He's like, "Yeah, that's just a that's just a joke." But uh, (laughs) no, it takes time. It at least it took for me. It took many years, and I'm still not uh, all that good with it. But I was doing it all, all the time, like every time when I went climbing in the warm-up, uh, in the main part of when I was trying boulders, I tried to do them dynamically and get to that point um, perfectly. And um, yeah, just do it like every day when you go climbing. I think it's probably the best way, but that's sort of, um, to be able to do that, you need to know though, that it's a weakness that you have. Mm. And I think we climb uh, so much that... We will know or we have some friends that will tell us that we really suck <laughs> at dynamic movements but uh, maybe like uh, beginners or intermediate climbers they won't know it all that well so maybe for them it could be good to get some uh, advice from a coach or something you can you can watch them climb and uh, maybe um, pick some uh, points of focus uh, for them
2: yeah yeah uh, obviously i went in the other direction trying to improve um i was physically weak when we started climbing so to climb dynamically was sort of like the only only option mm. so that came in like from 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 the beginning basically that that way of climbing to create a lot of momentum from from the lower body uh, and and swing more through through moves and then you come to a point and the walls get steeper and the holes get worse and you can't really like to, to, to climb all dynamically without having the ability to be calmer uh, and and position your body better. Um, it, it's not just, it's not compatible with climbing harder stuff because the climbing gets, like you have all these elements in, in hard climbing where you need to be precise, you need to be static, you need to control movement. So I spent the winter working that and I failed miserably because I didn't get that much stronger and I, really screwed up my dynamic way of climbing <laughs> because i sort of like over overdid my weakness um so i spent like when i when i bouldered i tried to lock off more uh and move with less momentum to be able to control the swings better and i think it could have worked i just did it too much uh and then i sort of like f- forgot got a bit what I was good at. Mm. Um, so it's this pendulum again, that, that you have something that is really good and then the pendulum swings a bit too far to the other side and, and you sort of like forget what you were good at. So I had to go a bit back to to my roots and then find other ways to work it. I think this, to, to look to others uh, and not necessarily always mimic them, but at least reflecting on on why they climb as they do. Um, like, why is it better for him or her to move in that way? And what happens when I do the same? And I, I think that we, we've been climbing, climbing for a quarter of a century now. And we've seen so many climbers. I think you just intuitively think like that. And you want to try to move like the best climbers you see. Uh, and, and you try it out on the wall, maybe not, maybe without even thinking too much about it. But I think like deliberate practice is that is that you 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 do something with intention. So like you can do the same move four times and you can do it with four different styles and see what the difference is. Mm. But if you're not reflecting on what the difference is, then what what's what use is it? So you need to do at least you need to reflect on it to be able to improve.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's really yeah, that's that's really great. Thank you guys both for all of that. I have a question in front of me. I wanted to ask you guys both what have been some of the primary focuses in your own climbing that have led to improvements or breakthroughs? And of course, we've already been talking about that a little bit, but Steon, I want to go back to a comment that you had earlier about the commercial climbing gym and how people climb a lot of the commercial set boulders and then that doesn't translate to rock climbing the way that they expect it to. And you and I had a conversation a few weeks ago about, you're climbing your first 9A and you talked about having a family and having kids and how that has changed your focus and, and really I think you said that you just haven't climbed in a commercial gym in a really long time am I remembering that correctly?
2: Yeah I think I said something like I don't I don't do anything that doesn't directly transfer into what I'm trying to do mm. so I train in a commercial gym but we have a really good spray wall setup with like 30, 45, 60 degrees walls Uh, which are really good set. Um, I had maybe three weeks in December uh, 2021 that I did just commercial set boulders for fun. Besides that, I haven't done commercial set boulders for like three years. Wow. Because it doesn't really, it doesn't, it, it It's really fun. It's like you said, we default maybe to it when we go to the gym, but it doesn't really, it, it won't help me achieve the goals that I've set out to do. I've climbed for so long and I don't really need to improve my competition style bouldering, uh, even though it's fun. If I want to, if I want to succeed on, on the things that, that I'm trying to do, then I know what to do on a spray wall. So, um, but then again, I have been climbing for a long time. It was several years of our lives where we didn't do anything else. So I have have like the volume and the pyramids and everything set up. So like after 25 years, I think I'm allowed.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, that makes sense. I want to ask you this. So do you think that just climbing a lot in a commercial gym on commercial boulders, is that helpful and relevant for newer and kind of intermediate climbers? Let's say up to like, I don't know, v8 v9 v10 something like that like at what point at what point does that start to become a trap that's keeping people from improving at the things that will translate to rock climbing in your opinion
2: we can we can turn it around and then we can see like some of the roots and boulders that were done many many years before commercial setting was really popular oh i like this climbing was really popular uh, and you could also see on the top outdoor climbers today, how many of them do a lot of like commercial set boulder problems. Mm. So I think like in the earlier days before the climbing gyms, or at least the big commercial climbing gyms, then I think quite like, like Jerry Moffat and, and Ben Moon and, and a lot of other climbers, they, they understood what they needed to do, like to pull hard on smaller holes on steeper walls basically and uh, I think today as well you see those focusing a lot on performing outdoors they tend to to train in ways that that are better suited to to succeed and I don't think commercial set bous necessarily um, are that specific to to accomplishing outdoor goals but I think they have, so much in them to understand climbing movements and to vary and to expose your strength and, and weaknesses. Uh, and you can learn a lot from it. If your goal is something else than to just tick off another boulder, maybe you can try to think, how did I do the boulder? Could I maybe do it again? How many times do you do a boulder again after you've done it? Not, not that often I would, I would think so. I think there's lots of value in it, and I think you can improve a lot as a climber by doing commercial boulders. But I'm I'm not sure that 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 kind of setting really transferred to outdoor
0: hard climbs. Mm-hmm. For you specifically, spending those three years mostly climbing on a spray wall, what were you focused on in your own climbing? What were you focused on improving?
2: Strength and uh, and uh, and power. Okay. I'm getting old. (laughs) Uh, That's that's what I'm losing. Like it's it's the strength and power, Um, and and that's that just like the things that I want to do are are the the main limiting factor for me is that I'm not strong enough to do the moves. And then when I am strong enough to do the moves, I can start figuring out if I lack endurance. But then. That endurance training. If I tried to combine that into a busy week, it would usually just distort my my strength and power training. Mm. So, so, it's been it's been that focus um, strength strength and power.
0: Martin, do you have any additional thoughts on the commercial climbing commercial sets um, as a route setter and a high level climber yourself?
3: <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I think that. Um, the commercial setting, as the says, I mean, it can teach you a lot, uh, but if you want to pull really hard on small holds outdoors, you need to train on small holds indoors. And we tend to avoid that in the commercial gyms just because it feels kind of nasty for a lot of the customers and they don't really want it. But it depends where you would Climb outdoors though, because if you're going to climb on sandstone, if you're going to either Font or some of the places that you have in the south of uh, the states, uh, I haven't been there though, but it seems like there's a bunch of big slopers. I think that style uh, is maybe more suited, uh, or yeah, then it's better to train on the commercial setting because there is a lot of volumes and a lot of slopers, and yeah. Big holds, so it might make more sense. Uh, and I think also as like a, as I tend to train mainly on the um, on the spray wall, and most of my stronger friends do. Uh, but um, the fingers get tired though quite fast from training on these walls. So I do the warm up on uh, the bigger holds and um, boulders that are um, that are set in the gym. Uh, and also have some days. I mean, Stian is on a very tight uh, time schedule, but if you have uh, more time and you have a week off and you're going to do more more training than a normal week, then include some easier days where you do these boulders and you focus on the technique. I mean, where I live, it basically rains all the time, so um, I can't climb all that much outdoors, Uh, so I have to train quite a lot indoors. There's a long winter and shitty weather in the summer, so, yeah, for me, it's main, Maybe I have like three days on the spray wall during a week, and
2: uh, maybe two on the session bouldering. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that, like Martin said, that if if you have more time, and, and and we can come back to that, Stephen. But that that what's make it makes the priorities easier when you don't have that much time. You like you need to focus on some things. Um, but when you have more time to climb too, to see that intensity in climbing isn't just the physical intensity. Like if the walls get steeper and the holes get smaller, then the physical intensity increases. So it's harder for your arms and, and fingers. But then you can have technical intensity. So you could do slab boulders. Mm. That doesn't really interfere with anything that you've done besides maybe getting mentally fatigued by pushing your session too long but 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 to see that you can challenge yourself technically uh, and physically in the same session is not ideal but if you want to lump things together then you could do that and then if the holds are so bad you can't really pull on them then you have to move in a different way um, so i think to maybe maybe to for people to polarize those things a bit in in the same way as as people are saying that we should polarize the physical training from strength and power and endurance and, and keep them quite separate. It's the same with, uh, with this technical s- and, and strength aspect that you could you could like, be really focusing on boulders that doesn't really give you the opportunity to pull that hard, but could be really hard to do. Mm-hmm. And then, then you'll start maybe to see improvements in, in both uh, in both aspects.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great. That's really interesting. Yeah. And for someone that has more days, um, yeah, you can't, you can't strength train five days a week or most of us can't, if we're, if we are, then we're not actually trying as hard as we could. So adding in those technique oriented slab days, they're really fun for one. Yeah. Very humbling it, it, often. But,
2: yeah. It's very humbling <laughs> but, but and, it's, and it's
0: problem solving and I've,
2: mm. yeah. And I've had, I've had a hard time. Having younger athletes like do them as well because it's it's quite like yeah, but if I haven't if I'm not tired after a session, then I haven't really trained. But it's like you, you can spend two hours on a couple of boulders, like technically really difficult. And if you if you don't do either of them, you probably learn something. Uh, at least you've been really frustrated for a long period of time, and then you learn something, something from that. So I think there is a lot of lot, lot to take away from the commercial settings as well. You just need to be, be a bit specific on, on what you're trying to work on. And usually we just pull towards the things that we could probably do uh, in a session or in a few goes. And then you give it a few goes. You might do it. You might not. And you move on to the next one. And you get your favorite wall angles and your favorite hole types. And we, we're just humans. So we go back to whatever we, we're good at. And and there's the mental aspect, like this metacognition part of it to 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 see yourself from the outside. I'm like I basically do the same on every session. Mm-hmm. This, this is not going to take me anywhere.
0: Right, right. Yeah, that is that is such a common trap. That is the mistake that I made for years, especially early on in my climbing. Mm-hmm. Just do the same lineup of stuff every time I went to the wall, and probably way too much. Like try to fit everything in one session and just wreck myself, and then. Take a rest day and then try to do it again. And um, yeah, I I, I was always, I remember at the time, I was always frustrated because I had friends of mine that climbed way less than I did and trained way less than I did. I didn't know much about training at the time, but you know, I'd finish my sessions and go upstairs and like do a core workout that just sucked, you know, and (laughs) suffer through it and do pull ups and stuff. (laughs) Uh, But they would show up for like an hour and just try really hard boulders and do that every other day. And they were, getting better results from me. And I just felt like, I remember I just felt frustrated and really unlucky. Like, Oh, it's, you know, they don't have to work as hard as I do or whatever. But in hindsight, I'm like, Oh, I was actually just spending a lot of energy and time doing things that weren't that helpful. And I was just kind of cluttering my, my climbing life with just a lot of junk, you know, just like the stuff where you're not really trying hard enough to cause physical adaptation, You're not getting pumped enough to really build fitness. You're just kind of doing a lot of climbing until you get tired and then repeating. Mm. Yeah.
3: Probably the solution is to get a couple of kids so we don't have time (laughs) off. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Shit. (laughs) I think also that we need. To separate the indoors and outdoors uh, because uh, a lot of the things that we do indoors, even though it's on a spray wall, aren't always very transferable to the outdoor climbing. Like it depends a bit on where you want to go. Uh, but outdoor climbing is outdoor climbing, uh, and it's something different. You hold on to to worse. I mean, either either more slopey slopers or more crimpy crimps, and you stand on things that you wouldn't even consider standing on indoors.
0: That's true. Yeah,
2: uh, and and this is this is a skill. And like so, the holes get smaller. They get worse. The position gets harder and more complex. The foothills are worse. So you need to climb a lot outdoors if you want to succeed outdoors. Uh, and I think that being constrained on, on on time, then you can do like in my experience that I've made major improvements in hangboards because that was what I had most time to do. Uh, but it's not it's not automatically transferring into uh, good results on rock because it takes a bit of time to to adapt to the style again and all these things. Mm-hmm. So you just just get out and climb more on rocks. It's, it's going to help you improve on rock climbing, obviously.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. That's that's worth that's worth hammering home for sure. Um, I'm I'm gonna ask another question from Ronvi. She asked, what are the biggest gimmicks in climbing in training right now, and what old-school methods are the most legit?
2: You want to go, Martin?
3: Um, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Like, the biggest gimmicks in training, I'll I'll start with the old-school. I'm old. (laughs)
1: Um,
3: No, but I think, like, uh, back in the day, I think, a lot of people had it quite right. They were, at least, though for outdoor climbing on hard outdoor climbing, though uh, they were pulling really hard on uh, on small holds. Uh, like if you watch the old films, uh, Real Thing, uh, the old pro tips with Malcolm Smith and everything. I mean, what they did was uh, was quite right. We spoke with Jerry when we were over there now, and like he said, I mean, I wish. I hadn't trained, like you said, Steven, like that hard for every session because it makes you injured uh, and it tends to, it doesn't optimize like the outcome of your training. Uh, You won't get that much stronger, at least not as fast as you could if you don't rest enough. Gimmicks. Did you have something time to think about that, Stian?
2: Yeah. I think I mean we we Norwegians we can just say that we don't really understand what gimmicks are and then if the, if the if the answer is offensive in some way we can just say oh sorry it was wrong answer for wrong question <laughs> um, I think there there is an obvious gimmick into uh, into measuring stuff um, which has been a part of sports science in other sports for a long time and it was about time that he came to climbing with all the possibilities of measuring everything, like from just peak force to rate of force development, to what time period in the rate of force development curve you should be measuring, um, to measuring uh, the oxidative level in your forearm muscles as you do stuff. Uh, So there are are a lot of instruments coming into climbing um, in a sports science way, which are really cool um and in in a few years we'll probably know more on how to use them um i think the pitfall is that people tend to get more focused on if they should hang something for seven seconds or 12 seconds or if they should do 10 minute blocks of finger training every day or if they should do maximum hangboard training two times a week uh if they have Good or bad contact strength compared to their maximum finger strength. Like you get trapped in all these measurements, basically. Mm. So in all its uh, with with all the possibilities that comes, I think in its birth, where I would place it now, then people tend to get a bit trapped into into the details, maybe, instead of like the things we discussed. If you want to improve on climbing harder outdoors then go outdoor and try to climb harder uh, instead of like thinking that you have to change your fingerboard protocol
1: Mm. instead.
0: Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And it is interesting. Like I, I'm obviously very interested in a, a lot of the instruments and measurements that are happening in climbing because I'm an engineer and that's kind of how I'm wired, but you're absolutely right. Like I, I've had so many conversations on this podcast with really high performing climbers. And, you know, those little very specific things weren't the secret for any of them. You know, like when it comes down to it, most of them have a, not an easy approach, but a relatively simple approach. Like they just... Simpler approach. Simple. They just try really hard on really short, hard sprayboard problems, you know, very often or whatever it is. Like they, it's not complicated. It's not these really nuanced uh, protocols at percentages of their max and things like that, it's I I I don't think I can think of a single person who I've talked to on the podcast where they went really geeky into that stuff, and that's what would that's what made the difference in leveling up to the you know to their current ability level or sending their project or whatever.
2: I, uh, I, I agree. and, and just just to, just to get that right, then I'm, I'm a really big proponent of, on bringing the sports science stuff into climbing and to measure stuff and to get more data and, and to find out on what variables are, are actually worth measuring. And I've done a lot of measuring myself, both with clients and climbers and athletes, and they give a lot and as, as a test result and something to measure against. And to have baseline values on climbers, so you can have something to measure against uh, when they get injured, for instance. Like there are so many possibilities, but it is still in its infancy, and it's just brought out throughout the web uh, as something that that everyone should do or can do at least. And and some people tend to just get trapped a bit in, in the details. And I think there are so many other things to focus on in climbing to improve.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk more about some of those other things. I actually, uh, I read the mental chapter and the tactics chapter and just have a few notes about both of those. And this is a question for you, Martin. I have a quote in front of me that just says, never respect grades. And there's a photo of you climbing the buttermilker in Bishop, the classic V12 there. Can you tell me what you meant by that or or why that quote feels important to you?
3: Uh, I think I said that when I was uh, really... um really young actually Um, because when we started climbing people had a lot of respect for grades and maybe they still do but uh, i remember it especially from from that time you weren't like maybe allowed to think that you were going to try this route or that grade before you had that route or that grade you had to do like the whole uh, ladder and yeah and maybe you're still still good to do like uh, a bunch of eight days before you do an 8p but still if you really want to try that 8p just go and try it and don't be afraid to do it it's just gonna it's just gonna hold you back so it's something uh, it's from my uh, from my youth really but um yeah it's a good quote i think don't be scared to
0: try yeah that's great
2: and I think to contextualize it, I think to contextualize it a little bit, it's like you did um, it was a, a route called Marathon, which is the first 8B route, uh, like 13D in Norway, which was done like in 1988 or something. And you did this route when you were, you were young, I don't know if you were 15 or 16, but at that time that was quite <laughs> exceptional, especially from Norwegian to do that route at that age with that uh, amount of climbing experience. And... I think we need people that don't respect grades that just go for just go for it and try to just break through and show that it's possible. And it's like what we call the Bannister effect. So like Roger Bannister was the first person to run an English mile, uh, I, I think it was under three minutes. And then when he finally did it, then a lot of other people came and did it as well. But I think you have all these unbeatable records that people tend to respect. And then someone comes along and doesn't give a really, doesn't give a shit, just (laughs) go on and do it. And then everyone else comes and does it afterwards.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. Um, it makes me think of climbing at Smith rock. Like I lived there for so long and would always have projects in the aggro goalie where like the, it's probably the highest concentration of hard roots at Smith in this single goalie. And, uh, me and my friends and a lot of the people, a lot of the locals that climb there every weekend, like we all had the same attitude about these 514s. You know, they're like 14A, but we're just like, oh, you know, that climb, just just really putting them up on a pedestal and being really intimidated. And and like, you know, there's some of them that I still have never even tried because I just had them in a certain category in my brain, you know, like I'm not worthy of getting on that thing yet. Um, and then... I remember Drew Ruana, he was climbing at at Smith a lot and he started coming down. He was like, you know, I was older and he was like an 18-year-old kid and he had all these friends from high school and college or whatever that would come down on their spring breaks. And they didn't give a shit about any of the grades. Like they didn't even know what some of these routes were. They're just like, that looks cool, let's get on it. And it's a 514 and, you know, they do it a few days and then just like move on to the next one. And it had a huge impact on me actually, just to see how... Yeah, they, they had no like irreverence for for the 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 climbs. They didn't care. They just like got on stuff that looked cool and, and they, they had no self limiting beliefs based on what they hadn't hadn't climbed yet, you know, how big their pyramid was, like what other routes they'd done, whatever. They just that looks cool. I'm strong, I'll get on it. Check you it out You won't
3: be like V thirteen strong by doing a bunch of V tens, you know? <laughs> you have to get thirteen. Yeah. That easy
0: yeah that's great from the mental chapter as well can you guys tell me about the play box versus the think box
2: uh that was something um yeah that was something that i that I got introduced to when I did my coaching education and a lot of the a lot of the sports psychology science is done on golfers uh because it's quite easy to measure um and uh, they they operate with a think box and play box often as a mental strategy so that you, you have an imaginary line. Um, so when you step aside of that box, uh, you're in, in your thinking box. You can do all the all the reasoning and all the self-talk and uh, and, um, and all the judgments on how to make for a golfer to make that swing or, or, um, or for a climber maybe how to to execute that move. Uh, But then when you step over that line and you come into the play box, then you leave everything else because what you want, you don't want your thoughts interfering with your movements. uh, Basically you want everything to go as automatic as possible. And then if you're starting to think too much about where your foot placement is, or if your hand is in the right place and just basically every every adjustment you're trying to make will usually just mess up the execution so um, it's more as a as a tool to to see what what state of mind you're in so like when you leave you you actually go for it mm. so you, i think it could you start both in training and and on projecting as well
0: yeah that's cool so you would you would have like an imaginary like an actual imaginary line in front of you at the boulder and you would step behind that and think about the movements think about beta think about what you want to do differently on the next try and then once you step over that line you're just trying to uh be present and in the flow and let kind of trust your body to do it is am i getting that right
2: yeah that's that's the that's the hope that that will happen yeah (laughs) um but it doesn't doesn't always do but uh but it it's a is a is it Tool to help you create that distance between your thoughts and your
0: actions. Okay. Then I have a question about the tactics chapter. I wanted to ask you, Steon, about uh, Eurofighter. Why did it feel important to include that story in the book? I thought that was really interesting.
2: Um. Yeah. Basically, just to brag. <laughs> that was the thing.
0: <laughs> tell me. Tell me about Eurofighter. What What is it? And. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, Eurofighter
2: is one of uh, one of the hardest boulders that I've done, and it was the first ascent. Uh, I, it was proposed as uh, V13, and it hasn't seen many repetitions. I think it's only Martin Antilo that has repeated it, so I, I think it's somewhere in between v- V13 and V14. Um, I tried it when it was found uh i tried it for some time and, uh, and i just i couldn't do it uh it was uh i was too weak basically this is like a 60 degrees deep wall on in cut crimps uh so it has some elements in it that suits me really well it has a very precise dead point and it has some elements that doesn't suit me at all like a very physical top part uh so um i tried it for a for some time and I, I couldn't do it. And then um, I um, started working it again several years after. I tried it a bit with other with folks as well. And suddenly I could just I could stick the first first move, which was the crux, this dead point move. And uh, I fell at the end um yeah, three or four times in a session and I thought it would just be uh it would just be a matter of time, basically um and uh i went out with with martin actually and another friend called kenneth on the day that i sent and i couldn't do the first move anymore because my mind was just set on doing the top part Mm. um so like you said with this think box play box to be present then i was everything but present when i sat down to do the start uh because my mind was just i was i would just I wanted to be finished (laughs) so I wanted to like not let go when I came to the end Uh, and as a product of that I just couldn't do the start and then it's one of those rare days where you can actually change something within a session so I was able to recognize where I was mentally and then just readjust and uh, say that all right fuck it if it doesn't go this this session it'll go the next one or the next one so I'll just change the goal for today to be to do the first move or to do the crux move as many times as possible this session and then see how it goes. And then next go, it went. That's awesome. So yeah. That was why, why it was important.
3: I'll add something. Um, that was a really cool day. Uh, that dead point move is so hard. <laughs> it's so, so hard. On, uh, except that day, he did it. So easy, but yeah, it's, it's horrible. The top is not so hard, though. That's another, <laughs> another story. <laughs> but um, I was thinking about the think box, play box uh, thing because maybe it's just for me, but it's on those kind of moves, like those precise dead points, like really technical moves, that if you start thinking and you start to try and analyze what you're doing, or if you are somewhere else, you're thinking about success or something that Stian was talking about now. It's so impossible. I mean, it's so hard to do those moves. Then if you start to, if I try to teach, uh, someone, some dynamic movement, and I try to tell them something like hey, you do like this, or you do like that, keep your hips like this, go out from the wall and into the wall, they start thinking, and then there's no way they're able to do it uh, the correct way afterwards. So I think in these types of, uh, situations or moves. This whole um, play box thing is so important because you just need to let it all go and just just climb on those moves. It's just physical, like the top on the Eurofighter. It doesn't matter all that much. Uh, of course, you shouldn't think about the top and wanting to be done with the whole thing. But for me, it's not that important if I'm like totally just in the play zone. But on those dynamic moves, it's so important, I think.
0: Do you have like a practical tip or anything like what helps you get into that place of just letting yourself climb like what do you do do you focus on your breathing do you is there anything that helps you make that mental shift if you find yourself thinking too much about the move
3: Uh no yeah Yeah I cannot be very angry at least on those moves Um No I don't actually have a really good uh, answer for that
2: Do you still yeah, I, I I tried to give myself one one challenge or one thing to focus on. Uh and that could vary. That could be that could be how to place the left hand on the hold that you're starting from for instance or it could be in a sequence of moves it could be to to do that move in that way so you have like one single thing to focus on and then hopefully the rest will come like sort of go with the flow. I had one really great experience i did a first ascent of a, of an hc maybe 11 years ago and i fell like i did i did did a move and then i fell on the next move and I, I didn't really think that i was able to do it that that day but like the next goal the only goal that i had was to hit that move where i fell i wanted to get that with a higher body position that was the only thing that i was focusing on and then Obviously, you've done the crux on the roots so many times before. So when you just come into the flow, then, then then it's fine. And I can't really remember anything after hitting that move with a higher body position. Mm. And I think to externalize it a bit, to, to like focus on maybe how, how a hold feels, or how a, a foot feels, or how, or how a body position feels, uh, could help you to sort of like a, a mindful detachment from what you're actually doing. Yeah, as
3: long as it's not super like important for the move, because I, if I start thinking about those things, it could also make it harder for me. I think mm. I cannot think about anything when I'm trying to do those moves. If I do, then it's it just gets harder for me. But yeah, no,
2: yeah,
0: it's kind of fun. You
3: know, I think, I think have, it's interesting. I really have to go pretty soon. Um,
0: okay, yeah, you've I've taken a lot of you guys' time. You have a halibut to catch.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can, I can, I can wrap things up. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, the kids the kids are going to sleep. <laughs> well, uh, thanks so much, Martin. It's really, it was really good to get to know you a bit and to, um, yeah, this has been awesome. I really appreciate your time.
3: Yeah, it's been super nice. Uh, I hope to see you in uh, Flagstaff or somewhere else.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I probably, I don't think I'll be here in October, but you never know. So yeah, be sure to reach out when you, when you come this way, maybe we can cross do. paths. Do. All right, Okay. good bye-bye. luck fishing. Thanks. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, I don't want to take too much more of your time, Steon. Let's wrap up by talking a little bit more about the book. And there's so much. I guess my question is: there's so much information now on the internet. There's so much information just in you know this podcast and people that have listened to all these conversations. What do you think people can get out of purchasing the Climbing Bible and um, having all this stuff in one place? Like, what what makes what makes this resource different and what do you think people can get out of it?
2: The ambitious goal was to gather a lot of the information and put it in a book, in, in a physical book. Uh, and I don't know, I maybe people nowadays like to search more and, and cherry pick whatever they like to, to invest more time in, in learning, but I think what we try to accomplish is to give a, a thorough introduction to the, the physical, technical, technical, mental performance factors uh, in in climbing, and and how to train them, and um, and hopefully it's comprehensive enough that that people don't really need to go everywhere else to supplement it. But obviously there are a lot of places you can go to to learn more. So, but but I haven't really. F- found uh, any other books that integrates all of these performance factors and bring bring them together. So I think that's hopefully what we can contribute to. That was the goal at least.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I think you guys did an amazing job. I mean, as far as having one book, one resource that really touches on all of the different performance factors in climbing, that I do think is relevant for everybody. I mean, I've been climbing for a long time and I definitely have already taken some things away from, from reading it. Um, I think you guys did an amazing job. And I haven't, honestly, I haven't even really taken much of a dive into the exercises yet. So that's what I hope to do this summer. I have kind of a training block with more time inside and, and even just more time, I'm sure I can do some of the exercises on rock as well. But, um, but yeah, I'm excited to dig into that and start playing with some of those exercises. From uh, yeah, from I'm the second book,
2: I'm glad to hear, yeah. and I think, I mean, the first book is uh, that that could be sort of like in, in Norway we made it as a as a hardcover coffee table book, uh, and it's like uh, even though it's a training for a climbing book, it should it, we also wanted it to be a, a an inspiration uh, when it came to the places you want to climb on and to show to an increasing amount of climbers, mainly climbing indoors, um, like all the magic wonders that are in the outdoor climbing world. So so that was also um, a goal with that book. And then the second book, you asked when we talked earlier, that now why, why didn't we just make a, a video library and put it online? Um, I think we kind of fell in love with the idea of having like a short dusted book stashed away in your backpack and then... And then <laughs> Sort of have the, the thought of, of uh, flipping it up when you go to the gym and see that, all right, I'll 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 try this. And then instead of looking at someone else doing it, uh, then try it yourself and reflect on it and see what can I draw from this? Like, why did this feel different than this?
0: That's awesome. I love it. So one book belongs on the coffee table. The other book belongs covered in chalk and dirt in your climbing bag. <laughs> you can pull it out every time you go yeah, to the hopefully. gym. <laughs> well, this has been great, man. Um, anything that we didn't talk about in this conversation that you feel is important to share before I let you go?
1: Um,
2: that that that's like a purely egocentric thing, but I'm quite I I like the way we um we made the like the injury part of of our book in The Climbing Bible, because it's not like a guide through injuries and how to treat them. You have different books and different resources for that. But I hope that we've presented that in a way that gives people more confidence to to move. Um, I think that healthcare is in sort of like an identity crisis, where we tend to make people very fair avoidant to movement. Um, I think that we and and we're educated in in finding flaws and finding all these small things, and we're not really even sure how much all of these small things really matter. And I think that we have a responsibility as healthcare providers to be more movement optimists, to use the words of uh, of a Canadian chiropractor called Greg Lehman. Mm. That we 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 should be movement optimists. Um, and in order to do that, to to start to understand what what pain really is, that it's not a measurement of tissue damage, but it's something else. Uh, it can be related to tissue damage, but it doesn't necessarily have to. So hopefully, what we put in that chapter in the book could could lead some people to uh, to a better rehabilitation and a and a more happy climbing life.
0: That's great. Yeah, that sounds like it's right up your alley. Um specifically with the work that <laughs> you do. So. Mm. Well, awesome, man. Uh thanks for all your time today. This has been really fun for me. Um where can people What's the best way for people to get their hands on this book? What what gets the most money in your guys' pocket? Um most well, most of my buy, listeners me, are in the to, 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 are in North America or in the states, uh Canada as well, but also Europe all over the place. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah yeah the, the best the best option would then be to buy the Norwegian book because we own all the rights,
1: okay <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then learn Norwegian. Um, <laughs> besides that, you could <laughs> you could go to uh, to Amazon or to Vertebrate Publishing. that's our publishing house in Britain, so it's the same ones that have Mastermind from Jerry Muffet and Beast Making from Ned. okay and a lot of other great great books. So it's the same publishing house. So you could, uh, look them up, uh, both on, on the internet and on their social media, vertebrate publishing and yeah, Amazon sells the books, um, and money wise, I don't know. I hope people like the book. I, I do, I do other things for, for a living as well. So mm. if, if we can give something back to a community and a sport that has sort of given us this much for so so long then th- that would be uh, that
0: would be enough that's awesome well i will be sure to link to both of you guys on instagram and even though i know you say you don't do much there <laughs> um, and i'll be sure to link to <laughs> all the places where people can buy the book i'll separate it out for different countries and things like that amazon links and to your publisher as well um, i'll put all Excellent. that in the show notes at the com. as always thank you guys for listening and thanks again, Stian. Thanks a
2: lot, Stephen. It's been great. Looking forward to meeting you in, in real life at some point.
0: Me too. Can't wait. I hope we pass cross soon. All right. Great. Have a great day. Okay. You too. It's been great. Talk soon. Talk, talk soon. Bye. Cheers. Hey, friends. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Stian and Martin. I put links to their book, The Climbing Bible, in the show notes for this episode at thenuggetclimbing.com. And you can find links for it right there in your podcast app if you want to check it out. Before you go, don't forget to check out Frictitious Climbing. Head over to frictitiousclimbing.com to shop for hangboards and accessories and use code Nugget at checkout for free shipping. The easy board might literally be the cleverest hangboard design that I have ever seen, and the hangboard doorway mount is a convenient way to train in your home or apartment. So check them out. Also, be sure to check out the Arc'teryx film, Free As Can Be. I watched it earlier today. I absolutely loved the film, and if you love climbing, I'm sure you'll dig it. Head over to YouTube and search for Arc'teryx Free As Can Be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. And don't forget to check out Chalk Cartel. If you need to refill your chalk bag, head over to chalkcartel.com to re-up on my personal favorite high-performance climbing chalk. Use code Nugget at checkout for 20% off your order. And check out the Half Kilo, their new size option that comes in a fully compostable bag. Be sure to check out Rhino Skin Solutions, whether you have dry, glassy skin or sweaty skin and have trouble keeping chalk on your hands, Rhino Skin Solutions has products that are designed just for you and your skin type. Check them out at rhinoskinsolutions.com and use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your order. And finally, don't forget to check out Grasshopper Climbing. The Grasshopper board truly is my favorite of all of the boards and it's the board that I plan to purchase for my own house someday Once I'm ready to take a break from van life, it's awesome. It's so much fun to climb on. It'll get you strong. So if you're thinking about buying a board, head over to grasshopperclimbing.com to check this thing out. And that is it, my friends. Thank you so much for listening to the very, very end. I appreciate you so much and we will see you next time.